So a few weeks ago, I was coming home from small group on a Tuesday night, you know, a little after eight o'clock, and I was struck by how dark my walk home was. You know, I don't know about you, but I just, for this, for whatever reason this year, winter has just seemed to come on really quick. It's getting dark so much earlier. It's like I'm having trouble sleeping in in the morning, uh, or I'm having trouble getting up because it's still dark when I'm waking up. Um, but, uh, you know, th- that, so that walk home at a little after eight was, was felt pitch black. And there's a few street lights on the road, but there's one of them about halfway between here and my house that's been burned out for some time. Uh, I have a be- bone to pick with, uh, uh, with Duquesne light, but that's a, a story for another time. Uh, and, you know, as I was walking, I could not even see the ground. I couldn't see the sidewalk where my uh, foot was stepping, right? The porch lights, the street lights that were around just were not giving off enough light to permeate the darkness, now, I suppose I could have pulled out, like, my flashlight from my phone, uh, but I've walked, I mean, this way, I've lived in this house for 16 years, so I've walked these sidewalks long enough that I know what the terrain is like. I know which parts of the sidewalk are raised or divots due to tree roots. I know where those, you know, uh, utility access valve, shutoff valves are located. There's, like, a pretty thick wire in one of them that always seems to, like, I, I stub my foot on. Um, so I, I knew where I was going, but I kept thinking to myself, I hope I don't step in anything. Because Robbie will attest to this, because he lives on on my street too, that there's a neighbor who regularly walks their dog on on this street and doesn't clean up after it. It's it's like every week there's, there's some remains left. And so even in familiar terrain, the darkness shrouded my vision enough that I may have navigated into something unsavory. Now, I, I didn't, praise the Lord. Um, now, I, I don't think it's any wonder, kind of given my e- experience there, I don't think it's any wonder that the scriptures use motifs of light and darkness as tangible expressions into spiritual realities. The very first of God's creations that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, is light. As God is leading the Hebrew people through the wilderness in between the exodus and their deliverance into the promised land, it was through a pillar of fire, of light, to direct them in the darkness. Psalm 27 states powerfully right off the bat, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 119 verse 105 reminds us that the word of God is a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. Again, I don't think that's meant to be literal. If I had had my Bible, that wasn't showing me where the sidewalk was, but it's meant to be that spiritual illumination. Right, there are times in Scripture where God is literally and is figuratively represented as light to bring illumination of our surroundings, provide safety in the midst of danger, and guidance through tumultuous places. Right, these are the motifs that exist that the Apostle John picks up when he first began writing this biography of Jesus, which is the Gospel of John. It starts this way, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. It's a reference to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, with, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Thanks, Jason. I was just going to ask if someone wouldn't mind just shutting that door. So John labels Jesus as the light. And this is the same language that Jesus uses in his second I am statement in John's gospel. Right, Jesus, Dorothy, I'm sorry, Dorothy, that one I don't think stays closed. Is it, is it closed? No, it's okay, great. If that, that door, the latch was broken earlier, so I wasn't sure if it's still working. Thanks. Um, let, me, let me try that again. So John, you know, uses this example, this illustration of light, and it's the same language that Jesus is using in the second I am statement in John's gospel. So on two different occasions, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Right, we're going to look at both passages that can be found. If you want to start turning there on your Bibles, you're welcome to. Uh, it's John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. And then we'll flip over to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And so Jesus is using the same statement, I am the light of the world, in two separate ways in these, these back-to-back stories. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 8, and we can follow along together. Now, as you're turning there, you might see the start of John chapter 8. It's a very famous story records the woman caught in adultery, you know, Jesus saying, he, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, th- this is somewhat of an intrusion into our story. If you see, I, I wasn't going to share this, but I'm going to share it anyway. Um, there's usually a little footnote in your Bible saying that a lot of manuscripts, and sometimes the oldest manuscripts, don't have the story. I, I don't necessarily think that that story was original to John. We can parse that out another time. I know that's like heartbreaking for some folks. Um, but really what we're supposed to be It's an intrusion on what has been happening, right? John 8 verse 11 is meant to link back with how chapter 7 ends, with chapter 7 verse 52. It's a continuation of these events. So if you have that open, if you kind of turn your eyes back to John 7, you see a heading that, you know, usually says something like Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Some translations might say tabernacles. This was one of the major feasts that was celebrated in the Jewish calendar, You you may have heard of this in in kind of recent days, recent weeks, because in contemporary Jewish culture, this is called Sukkah. And today is actually the last day of that festival uh, in the Jewish calendar for this year. So last week, just kind of linking back to last week, and I'm kind of jumping everywhere, but trying to bring, bring this together. Last week, we saw Jesus used another celebration, Passover, in chapter six as an opportunity to build this connection with himself as the bread that was sent from heaven for their benefit. So Jesus has already used one of these high feasts to prove a point of his identity. And here we see the same type of thing happening again. Jesus is adopting a part of the Jewish culture and reinterpreting it to point to his mission on earth. So follow along with me as I read. This is John chapter 8, 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, if I do, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true because it isn't I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written 
that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me also bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So the Feast of Tabernacles was kind of like a Jewish fall festival. It celebrated the harvest, but it was also an acknowledgement of the time after the equinox, where the length of daylight was shortened. It was a preparation for the season of winter which was to come. And so as a result of this, symbols, water, and light were very important motifs in the feast. Water is essential for the growth of crops and eventually the harvest. Likewise, light was important for plant growth. And also this remembrance of light as the season of darkness was almost upon them. So they focused a lot on water and light. In the previous chapter, chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, Jesus announces that he is the living water. That those who believe in him would well up within them this living water of the Holy Spirit. So he'd already addressed the water portion by the time we get to our text. But in our section, he's focusing on this metaphor of light. Now, to set the stage, let me give you some historical context for this Feast of Tabernacles. The Mishnah, which is some Jewish teaching, provided instruction for the feast. There were 16 lampstands that were filled with oil, and they were placed in the temple courts. This was in a society, right? They didn't have public lighting. They didn't have, you know, street lights that ran on the grid after dusk. These 16 lampstands would have provided light to the community in the midst of this feast during dusk, which would have been blinding compared to what they had typically experienced. So I want you to to imagine the scene. You've got these 16 bowls of lit oil filling the temple plaza, right? Some accounts describe this as lighting up all of Jerusalem, Jesus, under these fireballs in the dark, stands there declaring he is the light of the world. I mean, what a powerful image, right? That he is the light that is permeating the darkness. Notice Jesus didn't say that he was the light of Jerusalem. He didn't say he was the light of the city, but he was the light of the world. The word world, the Greek word that's used there is cosmos. It kind of means everything, the universe, Now, as we saw last week, Jesus throws down a gauntlet, and the religious leaders don't hesitate to challenge his statement. They say, you know, dude, you're, you know, bro, you're only, that's what my my son says all the time, bro, bro, you're only speaking about yourself, and therefore this couldn't be true. Charging him basically with having a big ego and making this all up. What they're looking for is a corroborating witness, right? Because in Jewish culture, again, this is an important piece. It's a little, I guess there's similarities for us, but, but one of the things that was important is in order to accept testimony in a court of law, you needed more than one testimony. There's a passage in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, 17, 6 says this, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. 
a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, of course, the context of that passage is about putting to death someone who has violated the commands of God. Because the point was, is if I had an axe to grind with my neighbor, I couldn't make up a story. I couldn't fabricate a tall tale to say, hey, you know what, I saw that guy shucking his corn on the Sabbath. Right? There needed to be a second witness to verify the account. Now, this process was, of course, not perfect. We see even later in the Gospels that, that uh, you know, Jesus is tried in this kangaroo court and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, find enough people who are willing to lie, uh, to, you know, lie about what they heard Jesus said in order to, you know, condemn him, to indict him. But the goal of this was to have some measure of accountability. So in our passage, the Pharisees are rejecting this strong claim because there's no validating evidence. You can't just come up here saying whatever you want, Jesus. And this is why, you know, Jesus gets a little cryptic with what he says next, talking about making judgments. You know, they're judging according to the flesh. They're judging according to what they can see. But Jesus says, look, I've got a higher authority who is supporting me in this. And in verse 18, he says, look, there is a duality. There are two witnesses testifying about this right now. Not just Jesus himself, but his father is backing up his story. Verse 19, the Pharisees ask, where is your father? Now, they, of course, are thinking again, as they often do in uh, biological terms, literally speaking. I mean, I guess it is still literally true, but biologically speaking. But in their comments, they incriminate themselves. <laughs> they admit, they acknowledge that they don't, they don't know the father. They're walking in spiritual darkness. There's an irony to this. Jesus is the light that's meant to provide illumination, meant to help people see the Father, to reorient themselves towards him. But these religious leaders, they've got some thick cataracts right now, preventing them from acknowledging the truth of what's in front of them. They are spiritually blind. So we see here in our first passage, Jesus drawing from this tradition of the Feast of the Tabernacles, to use the physical brightness of that feast, these 16 lamps of oil, to communicate that spiritual illumination that he brings. But this message, as it often has been, and, you know, is lost on the Pharisees, who are physically able to see, but they are spiritually blind to what's going on around them. You know, we, we were talking, I don't know if it was this past Tuesday or the week before, about the Pharisees, and they, sometimes they get a bad rap. But, but in many ways, the Pharisees are a lot like us where we're ingrained in our traditions, are ingrained in the way we view the world. And if something, you know, if Jesus were to come in and try to break us out of that, it might be a little, little, little tricky. We might not necessarily be as receptive as we think we are. So keep all that in mind. And next we jump to the next instance of Jesus using this descriptor. So flip over to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, Jesus and his disciples... He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So we saw chapter 8 end, uh, well, I guess we didn't see the end of chapter 8, but chapter 8 does end after Jesus has this whole uh, uh, conversation in the midst of the tabernacle's feast, and it ends with Jesus making an even more explicit claim to be God. I mean, very, very clear. In fact, the, the last couple verses say, and they picked up stones to hurl at him, right? They, they knew that he was, or in their mind, was blaspheming, and so he, you know, has this, this, this claim. And the text says that Jesus hid and left the temple. So chapter 9 picks up that Jesus is traveling, and he and his disciples encounter a man who has been blind from birth. The disciples use this as an opportunity to ask Jesus one of their theological conundrums. Who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents that he was born this way? The disciples have already presumed, they have assumed that there's a connection between sin and suffering. All that is left now is to determine what is the source of that sin. Now, there's not clear consensus on how to interpret what Jesus says next. Uh, There's this purpose clause, right, connected to the blindness, right? Why was it that he was born blind? A simple reading seems to, to indicate that it wasn't about who sinned, that this guy was blind, but that it was for this moment, for the glory of God to be realized in the miracle that followed. There's also a number of commentators. I mean, that, that puts something, again, I, I'm, I'm not trying to focus on our theology here, but that, if that is the case, you know, that, that puts something in our theology, right? If God kind of caused forced suffering on this man up until this point, that whatever age he was, that he would be healed, that communicates something. There are some other commentators who have suggested that the clause isn't meant that, like, this guy has been waiting for this moment, that he was prepared for this moment, but instead the purpose was that was in this, uh, uh, you know, there, there are two different words for time in, in the New Testament Greek, right? There's, there's kind of chrono- chronological time, and then there is time that uh, I, I've heard it described as pregnant with meaning, right? There, there's like a pointed time, and some suggest that this clause is not that, you know, that, that this was an appointed time of Jesus to do the work of healing to showcase God's glory. That was this, this focus, this purpose. Jesus is basically fulfilling his role to bring life to others, and therefore to bring glory to God. And I, I couldn't tell you which one is correct. My Greek is so rusty at this point in time. Uh, but let's not get hung up on that, you know, parsing through that and miss the bigger picture of what's going on here. Jesus is once again claiming to be the light of the world. And then what does he do? He bends down, he creates some mud, he spits on the ground, rubs that dirt, you know, the saliva and the dirt with some, some mud and anoints the guy's eyes. Now, this is actually a common medicinal application of the day. And then Jesus tells him to go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, this has a double meaning, right? Because Siloam, as the text tells us, means scent. So Jesus is literally sending him to wash in a pool called scent. But this was also the pool, the body of water, that was the source of the water used in the tabernacle celebration. And so here we have yet another link of what is happening in this miracle story, linking back to what we read in chapter 8, and if you read chapter 7 as well. Here's what I think this means. There's a very clear example. We see something similar in the Gospel of Mark in a different context. Jesus is performing 
a physical and visible demonstration showcasing his authority as the light of the world. This man, who had been living in literal darkness for the entirety of his life, was given a new opportunity. Jesus, as the light of the world, is giving him physically light. Now, if you kept reading this passage once again, you've got the Pharisees challenging his miracle. They call this guy in. They cross-examine him. They call in his parents to ensure, like, is this your son? Are you sure he was born blind? Like, that this isn't some stunt that Jesus is doing. And after verifying all of the facts in the case, they still reject the authority of Jesus. The irony of the story is that the man who had been living in darkness was given the gift of light. But those who claimed to hold fast, to be the protectors, the arbiters of light of faith, i.e. the religious leaders, they are the ones who are blind. They are the ones who are living in darkness. Now, how are we to understand this story or these stories in our modern experience? If Jesus is the light of the world, where is Jesus bringing light to our darkness? I've got a couple things that I want us to consider. Where are the blind spots that we have where we need the light of Jesus to help us see a little bit better, maybe with greater clarity? I mean, think about my opening illustration, walking home from the church on the sidewalks in the dark. We can easily go through life and just kind of coast. We've been there. We've done that. We've kind of learned the rhythms of life. We've learned where the bumps are. We've learned to kind of roll with the punches. We can walk it in the dark. But you know, there might be some landmines there on your path that you can't see. Unsavoring things that we might step on if it wasn't for the illumination of God on our path. I've talked to so many folks who believe in God. And they've gone through a crisis or they can point to an emotional experience where that presence of God was palpable in their lives. They have experienced God's deliverance, especially in those times of crisis. But then you go back to the status quo of life, and you can kind of just like sleepwalk through it. And then before you know it, you open your eyes, and God feels distant. We, we think we can see, but we're spiritually blind because we've lost our focus on that relationship with God. I mean, this was the challenge that the prophets often gave to the people. They'd say things like, you have eyes, but you can't see. You've got ears, but you can't hear. Because it's easy for us to tune out the voice of God and then wake up, and now we're the ones who are spiritually blind and deaf. The Bible refers to our hidden lives as places of darkness that Jesus wants to bring his healing light to. And so perhaps there are things about you that you've been trying to hide, behaviors that you've been hiding from others, behaviors that you've been trying to hide from God. it, It could be the websites that you frequent, the substances that you are abusing. Maybe it's the temper that you have in the confines of your home, but you know, you seem cool as a cucumber out in public. 
I'm, I'm sure I, and then it's not, there's, it's, there's no exhaustive list to that. I'm sure there's something that you can think of, a place where you would say, you know what, I'm not walking in line with what God's best for me would be. What are the behaviors that bring you shame? Especially if someone found out what it is that you're doing. We have a gift of the Holy Spirit within us to provide conviction. I'm not your Holy Spirit. I'm not the one who's going to tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing. My goal is to try to help, you know, give space for the Holy Spirit to work in you. And and even as I talk, I trust, I, I hope that there are things that perhaps the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now to say like, yeah, man, that's an area of my life that I really should let go of, that I'm really not doing what God wants me to do. Right, works that are darkness, not light. So if things are coming to mind, whether it be now or this week as we think through this, what do we do with those things? Because I, I want to say very clearly that God is not a God who piles shame upon us. Right, we, we believe in a God who brings forgiveness, who loves us. And so there is nothing, there is no gulf, there is no sin that we can commit that can prevent us from experiencing the love of God. I think that is piece number one of the gospel. But you don't know what I've done. I I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. The blood of Jesus, there's power in the name of Jesus as we sang this morning to cover and wash over anything. There is nothing in this world that can prevent us from experiencing love of God when we trust in Christ for our salvation. But the problem often is, and I, I know there are some of us that, that struggle with habitual sins, things that are like addiction, right? That you can be addicted to a whole lot of stuff. You can be addicted to substances, you can be addicted to fame, you can be addicted to entertainment. And the problem with addiction is it is so hard to fix yourselves. We can't fix ourselves. Some of these behaviors are long ingrained in us habits that we just haven't been able to break on our own. And I would suggest that we cannot just make those things go away any more than that blind guy that Jesus healed could have made himself see just by trying real hard. What we need is a work of God in our hearts. And I believe that that's precisely what the rhythm of confession and repentance is meant to do for us. Confession is the posture where we acknowledge our faults before God. We take responsibility. Yep, God, that was me. I did that. There's no sugarcoating. There's no excuse making. I mean, God knows our hearts. He already knows what we've done. It's not like we can actually hide anything from him. But because, as I shared just a moment ago, that that love of God, the affection of God that he has for us, and there's so many metaphors in Scripture that show this, where God is willing to take on the social shame of himself in order to bring us back, to welcome us back into the family. We can be vulnerable in his gaze. And from there, we repent. The Hebrew word for repentance, shuv, it, it it kind of gives this image of you're walking in a particular direction. And to repent means you stop walking. You turn around 180 degrees and you start walking in the other direction. 
right? Repentance is about kind of doing that 180 and start, you know, you were doing this, you stop it, and you start doing the opposite, right? Moving back in the right way. But part of repentance is paired with making space with God to come in and change us. It's the cry of God, I cannot do this myself. You're going to have to be the one to do this. I'm going to be faithful and do what you call me to. I'm going to make space for you to change my heart. But what I need is not like, it's not that I just need to try harder, but I need a transformation so that this becomes my natural MO, modus operandus. I think that's what that stands for. That's one area that I think Jesus as the light of the world speaks to us. And that's in a personal, that's in an individualized application of this principle. Right? Where is it that you're not walking in light? Or there's places you're trying to live in darkness, and maybe you like the dark, but God wants to bring light to you. But there's a, a, a corporate applications. There's plenty of corporate applications for us as well. And what I'm going to share next, I, I, I have a tendency to kind of preload things a bit. It's emotionally, it's a politically charged example uh, I was like, man, do I share this? I, I, I spent a lot of time actually praying over this. Like, do I share this, Lord, or not? And I just feel like I, it's important for us as believers to learn to navigate these kinds of minefields with nuance in the light of God's Holy Spirit, right? We're, we're called to bring to bear God's kingdom more fully here on the earth, and so I want to use this as an example of us trying to, and hopefully it doesn't just like I, I don't just kind of totally goof on it, but, but hopefully to give it as a, a case study for us to think about what does it look like to be pursuing light, to be pursuing tr- truth in kind of corporate spaces as well. So a few weeks ago, <clears throat> Stacey Abrams, who is a candidate for the governor of Georgia, was speaking at a university, and she made the following statement in the context of the abortion debate. She says, and I quote, there is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks It is a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to to take control of a woman's body away from her, end quote. Now, as you can imagine, this became quite the talking point uh, in the media. But I think there's two separate levels of her comments that need to be separated to some extent. First, there is the medical determination of whether or not a heartbeat does in fact exist at six weeks in utero. And there are lots of different medical professionals that weighed in over the past couple of weeks on these different perspectives. And in some way, the first half of Abram's statement is technically correct, right? From what I can gather from the things that I have read, technically speaking, a heartbeat, what is a heartbeat, involves the opening and closing of valves, which push blood through the body. And and at six weeks, right, fetal organs are not quite developed to, to constitute this, a heartbeat. However, what you hear through a sonogram machine are the electric impulses that are the precursor to a heartbeat. So just throwing that out there as well. So if Abrams had stopped after the first statement, I, there's enough gray area, technically speaking, that she was correct. Even though, you know, <clears throat> most medicine uh, does refer to it as a heartbeat, you know, I heard a medical professional compare it to, you know, if you are sick, you might say that you have the stomach bug. Technically, that's not actually what's going on inside of you, but everybody understands what is meant by that. Now, the trouble for me in this story came with the second half of her statement and what followed, 
where she suggests that the sound was a manufactured uh, in an, you know, an artificial sound, an effort to control women's bodies. So here we see Abrams suggesting a conspiracy theory, which I believe is inaccurate. Most articles that I read on this do acknowledge that what is heard is something biologically going on, these electrical impulses, the precursor to the heartbeat. It is not artificial sounds that are being made. But what was really disappointing to me in this is how this story was covered. I mean, try Googling her statements. What you're going to find are a whole lot of right-wing and some pretty far right-wing media outlets drawing attention to this. I tried really hard to find some balanced articles, but the left barely touched it. In fact, if you find something on the left, for instance, there was an MSNBC article with this headline, quote, Fox News is attacking Stacey Abrams for speaking the truth. All they're doing is just doubling down on the first part of her statement and completely ignoring the latter portions. I feel like if the left is going to call out conspiracy theories on the right, which they should be doing because there are a whole heck of a lot of them, then they need to get their own house in order whenever there's conspiracy theories on the left as well. Now I want to say, I like Stacey Abrams. I think there's a lot of good that she has done for our country, especially in the midst of some turbulent times. But what we see here is an example of the left circling their wagons, doubling down on the science of her statement, completely ignoring the false conspiracy statements she made. Additionally, Planned Parenthood actually changed their website to match her comments. Right prior to her comments, it referenced a heartbeat at six weeks on the Planned Parenthood website. But this is what they do. This is what the public does, trying to revise history to fit the narrative that they want you to see. Now, here's why I think this relates to our passage. And as Christians, we need to be thinking about this. How do we navigate the truth, because it, it is hard to figure out what do you actually believe out there. There's a clear desire in this instance for the left to control their narrative, and they're willing to obfuscate the truth of what she said. I first heard of the story actually from the Church Politics podcast. It was in their September 28th episode, if you want to listen to it for yourselves. But you know what? Both the hosts, Justin Gibney and Chris Butler, are Democrats. I am a Democrat, but they were quick to call out her comments, and they have the courage to break from the party line when trying to hold one of their own to accountability, because the goal is, the important thing is we need to hold fast to the truth whether we like a particular candidate or not. We're playing a zero-sum game too often. We saw these religious leaders blind to the truth of Jesus, they were influenced by their tradition, right? their frameworks, their worldviews, their stubbornness, their desire to maintain control. In the 21st century, there's little that is different. Right? We want to seek to control our own narratives, our perspectives of life. We're willing to buy hook, line, and sinker any explanation that fits with what we want to believe about the world. We must have courage to stand up for the truth of God. After the healing of the blind man, the Pharisees questioned him. He was under intense scrutiny, even dealing with threats of excommunication from the synagogue. But this man who had experienced the light that Jesus Christ brought him held courageously to his convictions. 
Even after they threw him out and he was briefly religiously homeless, he held fast to his testimony. Now notice, he wasn't focused on how wrong the Pharisees were, but he was focused, he held fast to the rightness, the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage us, may we allow the penetrating light of Jesus Christ to shine on our lives, rooting out those places of darkness, guiding us clearly with clarity on the paths of life. Now as we go from here, I have some things for us to think about, for us to consider this week. And as usual, I'll post them online. So going with that individualized perspective, I want you to reflect on a behavior or an attitude that is not in line with God's calling for your life. Identify that place where you know you're walking in darkness and take some time to go through that rhythm of confession and repentance. You know, confession and repentance, I must have skipped this because I think something I meant to say is not meant to be a solitary thing. You don't just like, all right, I confessed and repented of that once. Because as you know, sin rears its ugly head a whole heck of a lot. It's meant to be a rhythm, right? A daily, daily kind of thing. Here's the second one. As you consume the media, what disciplines do you use to discern the truth in what you read or listen to? Uh, I've heard this before, but it was just actually on the Holy Post in their um, interview at the end of the episode this past week that there have been studies that said if you just listen to one media outlet, you are actually more, um, I can't remember exactly how they said it, but you're like more skewed in your understanding of reality than if you were to read no news sources. Think about that for a minute. Reading one news source actually skews skews you more than if you had read no news sources. So as you think about navigating life, whether it be politically or just in in life in general, as you consume media, what disciplines do you use to discern the truth? And lastly, what is something in church tradition that you hold to blindly? I'm thinking about us as the Pharisees. Where is there something that we have a worldview, we have a framework that we've held to for so long that if Jesus was present, he might challenge your status quo? It might challenge to say, actually, you've been doing this wrong. And I don't have the answers for that. It's just some things to reflect on. And maybe the question is, would you actually accept Jesus as his word, or would you, you know, well, but actually, Jesus, you know, go back in that way. So those are some things to think about this week. Uh, let me pray to, to close out our message, and then I'll share a little bit what we're doing for our final song. So let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God of light. You are the light of the world who has broken into the darkness and that darkness has not overcome it. May we allow your light to guide us to to bring uh, healing in places of our life that are shadowed. Lord, may your light provide illumination that as we walk the paths of life, we can see more clearly your truth with a capital T. Lord, may we be reoriented and aligned with you as you walk with us, in Christ's name, amen.